Welcome to Strong Black Legends, the show where we give flowers to the legends of black film and television brought to you by Netflix and Strong Black Lead. Each week, we talk with the folks that paved the way for us to imagine what was possible both on and off screen. I am your host, Tracy Clayton, a.k.a. Tracy Clayton Hanks, if you must know my married name. Tom and I are registered at the Macy's and also at Popeye's. Just like all episodes of Strong Black Legends, I have to begin by practicing to be the kind of parent that I aspire to be, and that is the kind of parent that yells at you and asks you what you know about their favorite things. As such, I know y'all know about Debbie Allen, but what y'all know about Debbie Allen? This season has been so much fun, and sometimes, most times, I cannot believe that my job is to go around the country talking to our favorite black folks, the folks who made us laugh and made us cry and made us believe in possibility and gave us a reason to keep going even when we wanted to sit down to stop, child. Sorry, sometimes the testimony just sneaks up on you. We can't even begin to have that conversation without talking about Debbie freaking Allen. She can sing, she can act, she can dance. You know the difference between when people say that somebody can sing versus somebody who can sing? What is the dance version of that? Because whatever that is, that's Debbie Allen. Debbie can do it. She's also produced and directed everything from Girlfriends, Everybody Hates Chris, Insecure, How to Get Away with Murder, Amistad, Give Us Us Free. That was Debbie Allen. I was so excited and so nervous when I found out I was going to get to talk to her, but I had no idea that she invited me to her house, Debbie Allen's actual house. When I walked into the dance studio, which is in her own home, which is not a bad flex, she had portraits and pictures from all the different stages of her career just stunting on everybody. I'm talking about, bam, there's her dancing with Gwen Verdon, who was Bob Fawlty's wife. Bam! There's she and her sister Felicia Rashad. I'm sure you've heard of her. Pow! There's her and her husband, retired Laker Norm Nixon, and Shabop! There's her and her mother, Pulitzer Prize-nominated poet Vivian Ayers Allen. Legacy! Pedigree! Legends! I am so excited to share with you the conversation I got to have with the Debbie Allen once again in her own home. I hope you enjoy it! I'm still upright and not on the ground yet because sitting to my left is the one, the only Miss Debbie Allen. Hi. Hi, Tracy. Oh, God, you're so cute. (laughs) I should have done this beforehand, but everything just happened so fast. Um, uh, Hi. Hello. Thank you for existing. You're doing great. Thank you. Happy to be here. (laughs) Still in the making. Um, Well, I want to talk about everything. Everything Okay. That's a lot, girl. That's a lot. No. And let's start with um, baby Debbie Allen. I would love to talk about your childhood. And like not quite, not like a therapeutic way to like how was your childhood, but (laughs) you, your mom, Pulitzer Prize nominated artist and poet, sister, Felicia Rashad. I'm sure some people have known of her. What was it like growing up in a household that seemed to just like churn out amazing artists? Well, you also left out my brother, Tex Allen, who is, the oldest, he's a musician, mm. and my baby brother, Hugh Allen, who is a banker. 
Wow. Thank God somebody can write a check, check. Hey. Uh, my mother, who is actually in the next room, <gasps> is now um, 96 years old. Bless And her I'm heart. trying to steal as much time with her as possible. Of course. She uh, always gave us our own world that we lived in. Mm -hmm. She didn't paint the world around us as being the real world. She painted it as a world that was changing and that's what the universe was about. And mm -hmm. we were going to grow and be able to go wherever we wanted to go in the universe. So she raised us as children of the universe, not, you know, from Houston, Texas on Truxilla Street, mm -hmm. where there were, you know, barriers everywhere, you know, white only signs everywhere, sure. um, limitations that really had nothing to do with us. So she took those things away and made us believe that it was all going to go away. And she was right. Wow. How do you do that? That sounds like an incredible feat to do with humans of any age, but children especially. My mother is a very creative woman. And she had her own challenges throughout her entire life. Mm -hmm. To be a woman who's beautiful like Dorothy Dandridge, could make any dress on the cover of Vogue magazine, wow. could make an apple pie that could melt in your mouth, but also was writing poetry. And that was not like what they were expecting. They were like, shall I put that portrait down and fry some chicken? Right, right. <laughs> Do something to like so, keep us alive. So her challenges. She recognized as things that we would have to face. Mm -hmm. And so she gave us weapons of, of creativity and imagination mm -hmm. to help us overcome. In my head, if I were a Pulitzer nominated anything, yes. when I had kids, I'd be like, all right, well, we're gonna go read some Lorraine Hansberry. I don't care if you like it or not. Like, this is important. Art is important. Like, you need to have some modicum of this in your life. Was it sort of like that growing up, such a, an artsy mom? Well, mom was, she was a real artist and uh, it was everywhere in our lives. And I don't think we really had too many directions to turn where art wasn't like the forefront mm -hmm. or if she didn't make it the prerequisite. I mean, so instead of uh, saying, you can't go to the movies until you clean up your room, it was, uh, you won't be going to the movies unless you go to this museum with me and we see this incredible uh, uh, dance company from East India. Mm. That mm -hmm. was mom. And that's extraordinary for a black woman in the 50s and 60s who was kind of just on her own where sure. it came to that understanding. Mm -hmm. And it was tough for her. It was very tough. It, really kind of broke up her marriage to my father. Mm. Um, he was a great man, don't get me wrong, but the family didn't understand the arts and the poetry and that we were wearing our hair natural mm. and she wasn't pressing it straight. You know, we right. were wearing like- Team natural from jump. Nat nappy hair <laughs> <laughs> before anybody was thinking about it. Right, right. So speaking of, of changes like that, um, your mom moved the family to Mexico from mm -hmm. Houston, from what I understand, to get away from the racism in Houston, correct? Yeah. Or of America mm -hmm. in general. So for me, I'm from Kentucky originally, and I think Kentucky maybe just got brown people that are not black in the last like 20 or 30 years. So when I heard that, I was just like, is Mexico a place to go to escape racism? Because in my head, it's so far away. What was that like? 
Mexico was incredible. It proved true everything she had told us that, you know, you don't want to go to that restaurant that says white only. That's a club you don't want to be in. There's mm. another club for you somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do this. You can do that. So we got to Mexico. We didn't speak the language. There were Diego Rivera murals all over the buildings. Mm. And there were brown people that, you know, weren't that far away from us. And we could go to any restaurant, mm -hmm. we could go to the movies, and I could go to dance class, mm -hmm. which is something I wasn't able to do at home. Yeah. And so it told us that, yes, we were children of the universe and we had to find our place in the universe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Mexico City was a good place it for It was that. a great place for us. Uh -huh. It was amazing. So I don't know if you've noticed, but things uh, politically, socially are mm. not great. Um, should we all collectively just kind of hold hands together and go to Mexico City for a little while and just like dry out? Well, the truth is we need to embrace Mexico and the people of Mexico. I mean, California is Mexico. Hello. Let's tell the truth. Texas, Absolutely. You know, until they had the big skirmish mm -hmm. in the war. I just Absolutely. have a very uh, strong affinity to Mexico and what it did for me as a child enlightening me and making me know that I could become anything I wanted to become in this world. Awesome. Awesome. Um, please take me to Mexico City, just like when you get a chance. Not like <laughs> not like immediately, but like maybe tomorrow. Um, so from Mexico, came back, ended up at Howard University. Oh, yeah. Many years later, Howard University was amazing. That was amazing. What is your favorite? Do you have like a favorite Howard memory or experience? Well, you know, our anthem was Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Hey, man. That was it. You know, I'm going to write a movie about it. I really am because it was such an explosive time mm. uh, coming into Howard University and just being seeped in your culture, in, in your cultural identity, and then to be in the middle of the chaos with the assassination of Martin Luther King. Mm. That was all in my freshman year. It was a lot wow. of growing up. It was a lot of, you know, coming into age very quickly. I'm trying to think of a gentle way to breach this next subject because. Why? Um, Why do you have to be gentle? I don't know. Okay. I think I'm just socialized to try and be that way. Okay. This just became a therapy session. Now I'm just like, oh my God, why am I so gentle? Oh no. I'm going to start questioning you. Oh no. Okay. All right. Um, I'll ask the questions here, madam. Okay. So here's the question. Are you aware that there is a conversation on the internet about whether or not you pledged any sorority? And if so, whether it was Delta or AKA, is that something okay. that you're like conscious of? Like I, I, I'm not aware of the conversation, but I'm aware of it every time I'm in the company of multiple black women who <laughs> go we or skew we and they talk to me. Uh -huh. So when I was at Howard University, I was, my sister Felicia Rashad, whose footsteps I was following everywhere, mm. pledged AKA. Okay. So I was gonna pledge AKA. And I went and I made line and they, oh, my interview, I just remember it. I was just so sharp. They thought I was schooled <laughs> or I don't know what. But they were gunning for me. They were going to really let me have it. Mm -hmm. But my mother, Vivian Ayers, said to me, if you pledge a sorority, then I'm going to take all the money that I have saved to send you to dance school in the summer, and I'm going to buy a car because your consciousness is not in the right place. Oh my. Your focus is off. And I'm like, no, mom, no. Okay. That's so I dropped out of line. And wow. so I never did pledge, and I went to the... New London Dance Festival, where I met Alvin Ailey, mm -hmm. 
where I met the protege from Catherine, of Catherine Dunham. I met Twyla Thorpe. I met Martha Graham. I met the greatest icons in the dance world. Mm-hmm. And Mama was right. Yeah, so worth it. Yeah, worth see, it. that's what she did. She used, those were her tricks. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> I'd have been like, okay. <laughs> that's, I guess that's that. Um, so not quite an AKA, but you were on the way. I could have been, but no, I didn't go. Yeah. Um, how do you think the trajectory of your life and career would have been different had you not gone to an HBCU? Wow. Well, you know, I tried to go to a school of the arts that rejected me. That was not predominantly black. Mm. Um, I think Howard, I think things happen in your life for a reason and you might not always understand it. You can't accept it. But sometimes it's the best thing for you because I just became so, I mean, I grew up in Houston, Texas in an all black environment because everything was segregated. Mm-hmm. Our elementary, junior and senior high schools, movie theaters, everything, everything was segregated until like, what, 60, I want to say 65, somewhere around there, things started to really change when they started to make us play the songs the other band was playing. We're like, oh, hell no. We want play that horrible march. We want some, we want some, some soul job. Anyway, some on it, as the kids say. Um, <laughs> so I think Howard was the right place for me. It defined me in a way that I had no idea it could. Mm-hmm. To be not only at Howard, but to be in Washington, D.C., the center of this, the capital of this country, which yeah. is a predominantly black city mm-hmm. and to just be in a place where you were never the minority, you were always the majority and your opinion mattered mm. and wow. it counted for something. And so we, we came out of Howard knowing we were getting ready to roll and rule the world. Absolutely. And so my mother had already convinced us of that, but Howard, you know, validated it. Joe Neal. It just did. Really you know, those professors, those teachers, yeah. I, I, you know, when I did the movie Amistad, Howard University is how I came to that story, going to the bookstore. I picked up a book called Amistad, a collection of, of uh, essays by black uh, academicians and philosophers. And in the front of it was a preface that talked about what Amistad was, this slave ship upon which there was a mutiny. And I just, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Howard University has been a, it fueled me when I did A Different World, when I did that movie. All of my teachers were my best advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, Howard University is uh, a big part of my DNA. Yeah. I remember being um, little, however old I was, and watching A Different World. Yeah. And I also remember watching, um, there was a music video that took place on Howard University. And I was just like, that's what I'm going to do when it's time for me to go to school. And then I went to school and I did the exact opposite. You did? I ended up going to a school in Lexington, Kentucky that had 20 black people. And I was one of those 20. Okay. And I turned around and I was like, I need a rewind button. Like, I mean, I, was, I just felt like there was time and ground that I was losing. You know, I was just mm-hmm. like, I need, first of all, I'm in Kentucky. I don't have but that much blackness anyway. And I just felt like I should be like... I don't know, more immersed in blackness. And so like you, like when you were talking about picking up a book at Howard and just like reading and learning, I would do the same thing 
in college and I really fell deeply in love with the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I heard that you were Benita and Raisin, yeah. I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I would love to hear about like that opening night. Raisin. Oh my God. Like, what opening did it feel night. like? Yeah. I still have that red dress. It's in my closet. It was crocheted and Aww. Bernard Johnson designed it. I just remember my dad and everybody being in the audience. I just remember that opening. We were at the 46th Street Theater. It was, it's been renamed now. Mm -hmm. uh, it was such an intimate, big theater. And um, we had worked so hard. I had gotten the part on the road. I wasn't originally cast. Oh. I was the understudy. Oh, who went on and did so well, they called me in the office. I thought that was being fired. <laughs> I was being fired. I said, oh, I'm telling too many jokes. I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> too and, funny again. <laughs> and they gave me the role. They, they only gave me like another $200 to play the part. But who cared about money? Mm. I was so excited. And um, so it was a big deal. My whole family was there. Felicia had been a part of the whole Lorraine Hansberry cycle with to be young gifted and black Love, yeah. and when they did this she was she was pregnant and having her first child and uh, i had met donald McHale at the dance camp that my mom sent me to instead of pledging i met donald McHale, <laughs> and donald fell in love with me and i fell in love with him and he was the director so when i went in to audition for a dancer i said are there any parts he said Oh, I've cast the part of Benita, but do you want to be the understudy? I said, yes. <laughs> and then it turned into everything for me. Yeah. Everything. What, what was it about Benita that spoke to you, the role of Benita? Oh, she was determined. She was thinking outside of the box. She was a, a, a liberated woman mm. who was not going to be kowtowed by a man, and she was not going to be shut out, and she wasn't going to... She was also a woman who was very um, loving Afrocentricity. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. She was uh, getting culturally aware. You know, she brought in the African robes from Asagai and the family's like, child, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, I mean, I remember when I came home with an Afro and my dad wanted to throw me out. Wait, what did he say? Like, do you remember his exact words? <laughs> he said, he said. <laughs> I had a big afro. I was channeling Angela Davis, honey, down. Love it. And he was like, um, oh, you have so much time at school. You make yourself look ugly. Well, I'm not taking you to the Astrodome until you straighten that mess, nappy mess out. Wow. <laughs> and so I tried to stay, and I finally straightened my hair just so my daddy would let me, uh -huh. would forgive me. But then I went right back to it as soon as I left yeah. and went back to school. What did that feel like? Because I remember my grandmother rest her soul once I went natural. She was just like, she would just, she wouldn't even say anything. She would just, just look at me like, ugh. Mm, mm. So what did it feel like to hear your dad say, you know, like this mess that is coming out of the head that I helped to create, the way that your hair grows out of your head is not working for me. What did that feel like? You know, it didn't hurt my feelings because I just felt that daddy was not with it. Mm. We were at Howard. We were progressive, you know. You already knew better. And everybody was on our campus, you know. Everybody was coming up in there. You know, Huey Newton, everybody came to Howard University. Mm. So we were like, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud was our theme song. Right. You know, um, 
Was there ever a time when you um, tried to sit your dad down and just be like, well, listen, you know, like, I know here's what you think, but here's here's what's really going on, man. I mean, like me and Huey was hanging out the other day, so you need to get with the pops. Uh, you know, my dad always said I was very persistent, that I always had to have the last word, but mm. I was my daddy's girl. I loved him. I There was a while, a while where I really thought Felicia was his favorite because he would always take her and leave me. <laughs> and um, But I, I love my dad so much. And um, whatever disappointment he might feel would affect me. Mm-hmm. It's why um, uh, there was a play that wanted me to be nude on stage. And I didn't do it because I knew that I couldn't invite my dad. Mm-hmm. And I can't do something that I can't invite my dad to. Yeah. And so it was the only time I ever got fired. Yeah. Yeah, but it's okay. I didn't have any bosoms in flight in time, so child, please. <laughs> um, that's very interesting to me. Talk to me some more about, like, the roles that you chose to take. Like, what was your, how did you decide, like, did it have to speak to you in a certain way? Child, please, or... wait, stop right there. Oh. All of us were going for the same role. There were not enough roles. When we auditioned. Fair point. When we auditioned for, uh, oh, Ragtime. Mm. When we auditioned for Ragtime, Milos Forman's Ragtime, all of us were at that audition. Mm. Just name somebody in my purview. Everybody. In fact, we all went to lunch, like eight of us. We went to Sardi's, I remember, mm. and had lunch. Like after the audition together? Yeah, because we knew one of us was going to get it. Oh. It was like that. So was it wasn't there... like we were, oh, I'm going to choose this. Oh, I think I'll. Child, right. you had to go and make something of what was offered. Right, And right, right, thank right. God if, you know, we were happy that any of us were, you know, we celebrated each other. Uh-huh. I'm very appreciative of that reminder because I realize it's a thing that I forget is that today is not yesterday. And that, you know, like there's, we still got a long way to go, but there are more roles available for actors and actresses who are black, basically. Um, so I think knowing that kind of helps me to re or put in better perspective your role in fame because I cannot imagine anyone else in that role. I cannot imagine anybody else auditioning for that role. It just seems, it just seems so iconic and you are so, so stunning. Um, what did it feel like as a dancer to, to play a choreographer who was just like really whipping everybody into shape. Well, I got to really play that part better in the series. In the oh, movie, right, right, right. I had one line. Mm-hmm. It was reduced to one line. It was supposed. I was supposed to be uh, Irene Cara's nemesis, but Alan Parker had already shot like a ten-hour movie before he got to my part. Rude. So they gave me the dress and told me, "All right." Mm-hmm. I said, "Okay, baby, I'm good." <laughs> in the series. They wanted the dance teacher to be a little younger. Mm-hmm. So they snatched me up and um, I was more interested in the choreography. It was something I asked to do. They, oh, didn't really? ask me, they didn't ask me to do it. I asked them. Wow. I said, well, you know what? I'll play this part if I can do the choreography. They said, oh, yeah, please. You can have that. Mm-hmm. But that was the real, that was the real role was to do the choreography, which led to directing and which led to me helping to shape the musicality of that show. Mm -hmm. Did you consider that a dream role? Because it just seems like the intersection of so many of your 
talents and interests and skills? Well, you know what? It was such hard work at the time. It didn't feel like a dream. You have mm. to know that there was no one that could tell me how to do what I was being asked to do. Mm-hmm. There was no choreographer that I knew who had done a series in a dramatic form and how do you do it week to week to week? Mm-hmm. How do you get these mu- musical numbers ready to be camera ready? So I figured it out. Bill Blend was my executive direct producer and he was amazing. And I said, well, let's always try to push the dance to the end so mm-hmm. I can have a f- couple of days to rehearse. Well, it would turn into my whole life because those kids lived at my house. I would rehearse on the weekends. Wow. And in the middle of, you know, I'd do whatever it took. Mm -hmm. So I was really working my ass off in fame. So it wasn't like a dream time. It was work, work, work time. And um, yes, I was in it and I was choreographing it and I was finding music and I was involved in their lives because they all were real young people Mm -hmm. who needed mentoring yeah and i became that off screen so my life was very full during fame i never had a day off wow for like years and finally um after i had my my first child and um there was a dispute over what that dancer's money was in the studio in my opinion took the wrong position mm. I, and they wanted to fire my dance company I said well if you fire them I quit wow and so I left the show and I did sweet charity mm-hmm. which, which was amazing right and so um I left and then they said we have to have you back I said bring back my kids and they let me have over half of them but mm-hmm. anyway um uh I hope that this is not an odd question, but do you get nervous or scared in your line of work? You know, I don't get nervous. I get excited. Okay. Those are two That's very different. different. Yeah. I get excited to do something that I want to make sure that I'm successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm playing in Grey's Anatomy all the time and the writing is so wonderful. Um, Shonda Rhimes gave us the gift of a lifetime and God she gave Shonda. us uh, the show, and then she gave us Krista Vernoff, who's mm-hmm. our showrunner, and her sensibility of character and story is just taking Grey's Anatomy more closely to where Shonda Rhimes started. So every time I look up, I have like maybe three or four pages of dialogue, and I want to make sure yeah. that I'm like on it. So I work really hard to do all of these things, uh, but I get excited more than nervous. I get excited. I get excited when I take my kids somewhere to dance. Mm. Uh, We were dancing on the Grammy Awards, um, this big swan song to Ken Ehrlich, who had produced it for 40 years, who had also been our producer on Fame for a couple of years. And it was the same day that we lost Kobe Bryant. Mm. And it took so much courage to pull through that. We were all so devastated. Yeah, And it was just... You know, and I actually had to get away from the kids because I was just broken. And then finally I had to pull it together and I pulled them together and said, we are dancing for Kobe today. That's who we're dancing for. And he plowed through, come on, we're in the playoffs, we're dancing for him. And it's, there's many challenges that come to you that you don't know are going to come. Yeah. So I absolutely cannot, I'm sorry. I can't leave your home until I talk to you about another, uh, excuse me, I cannot leave your home until I talk to you about a different world because it's, it's the reason why I feel like 
we grew up together, mm. you know, even though um, I did not see you physically on the screen in every episode, once I learned and found out that you were the one behind the camera, I was like, oh, of course, of course, this is Debbie Allen, of course. <laughs> um, I am very, very taken with um, your entry to the show, which you joined um, second season, correct? My coming into this show was certainly somewhere between my sister, who was, you know, Denise's mother and mm -hmm. had visited the campus of Hillman on the show and seeing what was happening behind the scenes. There was not a happy place at mm. a different world behind the scenes. Mm. They didn't quite have the right producing director there. Yeah. And uh, Felicia went back and talked to Bill. And the next thing I know, I was getting a phone call from him saying, we need you to get out your broom and dust it off over there. Go and clean house. I said, all right. So then I met with Marcy Carsey, Tom Werner, and Karen Mondebach. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, give me every episode. They said, you want to watch every episode? I said, absolutely. So I know Which how I'm going to fix this and what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And so then it was about breaking down in the writer's room to let them open up to new ideas. And Denise, yes, she was pregnant. And we were going to do such great stories about a girl who was a black girl from an upper middle class family, uh -huh. pregnant and not married for mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, how it's usually portrayed. And then finally, Bill, I took her to meet Bill to tell him and he saw us coming. It was the funniest meeting. Uh -oh. oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, he said, no, Debbie. Lisa Bonet is pregnant, not Denise Huxtable. No, you can't have it. I'm like, okay. Because it was going to be great. We wanted yeah. to use that, but it was a little early for him to let go. And, you know, she was very precious to him. So, uh, but we made the show so relevant. Jasmine Guy, I had brought to Los Angeles. She was one of my fame dancers. Love her so, and, so and then uh, Kadeem Hardison, I had known him as a kid. Oh. His mother, Beth Hardison, was one of the baddest models in New York. And we were friends. And I remember him coming over as a little kid, jumping on my waterbed. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm, I'm your Kadeem. I'm like, huh? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, it's you. <laughs> So we uh, took that show apart and put it back together. Mm -hmm. Susan Fales was amazing as the lead writer on that show. She was just amazing. Yeah. We, we developed that show and made it so relevant and made everybody want to go to college. We tripled the enrollment really? of historically black colleges. Yes. And we made all kids, black and white, everybody wanted to go to college mm -hmm. because they felt that there was something there. That, that they connected to, that they loved, that they wanted to have that experience. Having come from Howard University, I knew what to do with the show. I yeah. lived it and breathed it. Uh -huh. So I knew the stories that they needed to be telling. Mm -hmm. Not and what were those stories? Well, they didn't need to be walking around talking about an egg. Mm -hmm. They needed to be doing stories about voter registration mm -hmm. or date rape or uh, just themselves, their cultural identity. Mm -hmm. You know, who is Whitley Gilbert? Who is the boy in this cast that she needs to be with? And I was hands down, it's Dwayne. Yeah. And they were yes. like, no, no. I said, it's Dwayne. <laughs> so don't tell me about some pretty boy. That's not, no. Uh -huh. She's going to go with whoever's more intelligent than mm -hmm. she is, can make her laugh and give her shit. And earned her. Yes. Absolutely. claimed his woman. I wonder if you got a lot of pushback with the changes that you were trying to make. Like what... Yeah. 
What do you think the impact of having Denise on the show, pregnant, upper middle class, but still at school, like what impact do you think that would have had on viewers? It would have been a huge impact because already the Cosby show was changing the way people were looking at black people. Mm -hmm. For what reason? It, would, it took a television show for them to realize that we are middle class, just like everybody else. For sure. Upper middle class. But um, this was something that uh, people weren't ready. They just weren't ready for it. I don't know why yeah. we wanted it, but we did many other things they weren't ready for. I was always being called into what I call the principal's office <laughs> for doing shows that were, you know, really about something. We did a, we did an episode once called Mammy Dearest, where we reclaimed the image of Aunt Jemima. Mm -hmm. We took her out of that gingham fabric and we took the gingham, that gingham mammy dress and wrapped it like an African queen. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the most difficult episodes we had to do because we had people that were wearing blackface and it was very controversial, but we were just dealing with it straight up. And then this cute, the cutest little white boy that you have wanted to see in your life is who wrote it. Glenn Berenbaum. Yes, he wrote it. It was amazing. Uh, and then I introduced Ego Trippin', mm -hmm. Nikki Giovanni. That was Howard University speaking again. Yes, yes. You know, because we met Nikki. We were all doing that. Yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't know anything about that. that. We need to introduce it again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that's how I became aware of Nikki Giovanni's existence. From that? Time. From that episode. Because when she was like, I turned myself into myself, and I said, what? Who is this lady, and how can I be like her? Well, this is the thing. Television is so powerful. This is something that I'm sure is part of what your conversation is. Mm -hmm. And while you're talking to any of us, mm -hmm. television, film is so powerful. It penetrates the arts. It's for the arts to address those things that are most difficult, challenging, things that people need to know about. Right. And if we're not doing that, we're not really doing a good job. Yeah. We can't just be booty shaking and, you know, Slamming. It. it has to be about something, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. Speaking of art and music, great transition, right? It was not a great transition. <laughs> um, I, I really, really want to talk to you about um, you and your sister Felicia on Solange's album. Oh, um, okay. I don't know how... I did not know until today that the poetry that you and Felicia are reading it's from your mom. Mm -hmm. How, I don't, that's on me. That's my fault. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the lines that you're reciting in the song? The, it's from a poem called On Status. One of my mom's uh, poems from her book, Spice of Dawns. And this was the book of poetry that was the uh, contender uh, for the poetry nominees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's about a woman who comes from a very simple place and aspires to be in a big city and all these other places, but realizes that where she really belongs is with the folk that she comes from and what really matters. We did this Mother's Day special, oh my God, 25 years ago, I don't mm. know how long ago, where we kind of surprised our mom. It was me, Felicia, and my brother Tex. Um, and we recited one of her poems on status, um, a beautiful poem. It's something I used to win portrait contests with when I was a kid. Yeah. And um, Solange uh, had seen that special and really liked it. I'm friends with her mom, Tina. And so Tina called me, says, Debbie, Solange is just obsessed with this <laughs> you and your sister's poem. 
I said, really? I said, of course she can have it. She can have anything she wants. So Felicia and I said yes to, you know, that poem is, um, how does it go? It says, um, oh, I boarded a train, kissed all goodbye, and in my heart was a sympathetic sigh, for I would go and live in a city where people and hearts and buildings were bigger, while they remained to work and toil in a town whose thriving was of soil. For long it worked, I knew no distress. I even decided to write them less. What need had I for old folk degenerate, whose living and thinking was way out of date? Then one quiet day I found all of me confusion bound with problems as high as Jack's beanstalk and no one with whom to talk. My dilemma was all my own. No counseling dad, no kindness shown. And for once I knew my real status cockroach in the park theater. Now my heart knows no delight like a trip back to the old home site. And not for money would I scoff at a screen door hanging off. So they got no tall skyscrapers, clowns in nightclubs cutting capers. It's home. The folk are warm. And most important, I belong. Um, Thank you. I just need that first line. That was... Beautiful. And this, like, as you're sitting here now reciting this poem that, as I'm listening to it, seems to reflect so much of you and your life. Like, what does it feel like? How do you you connect with that poem now? What's interesting, because I was winning poetry contests with it when I was like 12 and 13 years old. Mm. And it's so true, because my life is... And Korea's taking me around the world. I've seen everything. But at the end of the day, it's really my family that makes me whole. Mm-hmm. It's really my family's love for me mm-hmm. that makes me feel like I can keep going and doing what I do. It's that. I feel like the recitation of that beautiful poem mm-hmm. while looking back on your career is the perfect moment to talk about what you're doing now. What can we look forward to? What is, what's coming out of the Debbie Allen Dance Academy? Oh, wow, mm. the Dance Academy, my kids, I call them Dada Diaspora. Wow. And they're all over the world. Mm-hmm. They're in film, television, on Broadway, in Europe, on the road, in China, in Brazil. Wow. I, literally, they are everywhere in the world. And I'm so proud of what we're doing and that we're keeping it going. We're in a capital campaign right now trying to build a new building Mm -hmm. because they deserve to have the state of the art, you know, academy. And we're going to give them that. Mm -hmm. Um, We just did our 10th anniversary of the Hot Chocolate Nutcracker, which was off the hook. Happy anniversary, by the way. Yeah, it was great. It was an all-star cat. Felicia was in it. I put her in it. So tell me about what is what is Hot Chocolate Nutcracker? Well, it is a new telling of the classic Nutcracker. It, um, it's something I was involved with many years ago. You know, uh, Ellington wrote a, a Nutcracker suite hmm. that is all of the music from Tchaikovsky, but it's jazz. Oh. And we did a version Ooh. then using that music. But uh, Gil Cates, who was my personal rabbi, He produced the Oscars 10, 15 times. I don't know, I did all of them with him. Mm. Um, He said, Debbie, you need a Christmas show. You need to do a Christmas show. So I said, okay. So finally I wrote it and I was inspired by my son, Thump, 
who mm. when he was a little boy, he's 30 now, but when he was like five, I took him downtown to the see the Nutcracker. He was bored to death, child. <laughs> and then the, they started dancing and he's like, Mom, when is the rat coming? He said that out loud. He said that, he said that out loud. The audience screamed. Uh, I said, and that stuck with me. I said, okay, the boys want to see a rat. Mm -hmm. So I created something called the Rat Pack. And I took who was the Mouse King and made him Harvey, a New Yorker <laughs> who's got two sidekicks. And they're like, you know, enough already with this battle with the Nutcracker. We're going to change this around. Mm -hmm. And it's just... Um, a musical fun delight, and we go to the land of the candy canes. You know, we still go to fairyland, but mm. we go to Egypt. We go to oh wow, uh, to to New Orleans. We go to Birdland. <laughs> uh, we go to China. We go all original music composed by Arturo Sandoval, James Ingram, some Mariah Carey. Love James Ingram. Right? Um, Ricky Minor, all of us. Um, and it is just a new classic. And I'm telling you, every time we do it, we sell out. So really? uh, the 10th anniversary was off the hook. It wow. was off the hook. And so um, I'm hoping one day we'll make it a movie. It's gonna. There's gonna be a behind the scenes special on Netflix. I can't wait. Christmas time, yeah. It's gonna it's coming. Shonda Rhimes actually produced it. Shout out to Shonda. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited for this documentary because I have so many questions about taking something as classic and as timeless as mm -hmm. the Nutcracker. And you know, mm -hmm. people get defensive over like, well, this is a classic and it shouldn't be touched. It shouldn't be like retold. Did you meet any of that resistance? And if so, did you care? Did people it matter? People were so happy yeah. to go and see a new telling of the story. There's gotta be 700 nutcrackers in this country mm. around Christmas time, and they're all different and varied. And classic means it's something that needs to be revisited year and age after age, that it is still relevant, mm. like the work of August Wilson, like the work of Tennessee Williams, like the work of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It is, those stories are worth telling with a new, with new clothes on. This is all about imagination mm. and creativity. All right, you got my vote. Debbie Allen for president 2020. Child. <laughs> I would not wish such a thing on you. Um, I am I'm so, so happy to have had a chance to talk about this with you. Thank you for all of the lessons I learned so much about the sun and like cameras and <laughs> mentorship and directing. Um, uh, you got anything you want to plug? Like what's, what's, what's next up in the pipeline for you? Well, there's a movie coming out on Netflix, Christmas on the Square, Dolly Parton. Uh, it's all her music, and it was the brainchild of Sam Haskell, mm -hmm. who produced all of her movies for Netflix called Heartstrings. Uh -huh. And so we did an incredible uh, movie that's inspired by uh, It's a Wonderful Life and Scrooge, and, and Dolly plays an angel. It's really wonderful. It's mm -hmm. lovely. A lot of dancing and some great talent on uh -huh. that screen, Christine Baranski. So I'm doing that, and uh, I have my my freeze frame stop the madness which is a dance driven narrative about gun violence and racial prejudice in america wow. and a very balanced portrayal it's all music and dance and i'm determined <clears throat> determined to get it out there to the people it, it's something for the people mm -hmm. and i feel like 
we need music and singing and dancing right now. Yeah, we do. So badly. So thank, thank you, you for supplying that for us today okay. and yesterday. And thank you for talking with me today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Okay, this is the part of the show where I give metaphorical flowers to something or someone black that I really enjoy. We call it Tracy's Flowers, and this week, my flowers go to, drumroll please, Dana Owens. Now, somebody just said, who is Dana Owens? I know you did, and look, I'm too tired today. How can you not know that Dana Owens is Queen Latifah? Go get you an encyclopedia and get you a clue. And then tweet Queen Latifah and apologize for not knowing that she is also Dana Owens. She's just so bomb. She's so amazing. She does literally everything. So, okay, first of all, do me a favor and go to your internet machine and try to find a picture of Queen Latifah where she looks a mess. Oh, you couldn't find any? Oh, that's because there aren't any. I have never seen her with her hair not laid makeup just just fresh and just amazing i've never seen a bad picture of her musically she does it all we already know that she raps and from the jump she used her music to let you know that she is not having it because she has had it up to here (laughs) see what i did latifah's had it up to here is the name of a song that she did and so i had said up to here because it was funny to me y'all get it her first album was called all hail the queen which everyone immediately did and she continued to give us bops that got us all in line such as you and i t y who you calling a bitch not queen latifah because she's not having it and then she was like rapping is cool and all but mama i want to sing and so she did she released an album of her singing jazz standards she has had roles in movie adaptations of some of my favorite broadway shows chicago and hairspray she was in lee daniel show star she was ursula in the little mermaid live and she sang the theme song to not one but both of her talk shows which speaking of she had two daytime talk shows y'all And you know what? Both of them were good. My favorite one, though, is the one from the 90s. And there are so many clips on YouTube. I encourage you all to go watch them just as soon as we're done hanging out. They're so good. Y'all already know that she's an amazing actress. Everybody knows about Set It Off. Everybody should know about Living Single, which Queen Latifah herself said was basically ripped off by the people who made Friends. She said it, not me. So, and it's true. And she is also all about her money. I love me a black businesswoman. There's the makeup line that she had. R.I.P. to the CoverGirl Queen collection. We miss you every day. She does voiceover work. She's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She's now producing. She is really doing everything. And I think it's high time that she gets her due. She also, in my humble opinion, looks just like Zora Neale Hurston. So she's basically blessed and anointed by the ancestors directly. And so, Queen Latifah, a.k.a. Khadijah, a.k.a. Dana Owens, these flowers are for you. Well, podcast family, that's it. We did it. We made it to the end of the road. Congratulations on making it to the finale of season two. We did it again. I keep saying we did it again, but we did. And what a finale it was. I didn't get to take any souvenirs from Debbie Allen's house because I think that's called theft. But I do have this recorded conversation and nobody can deny that it happened. It's in all the history books. 
Yay. (laughs) I got to talk to so many amazing people this season. People we've all welcomed into our homes through our TV screens across the years and given them their well-deserved flowers. But don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to go acting high sedity and brand new now just because I'm celebrity adjacent. You know what I'm saying? Like, just don't mind me next season when I'm speaking into a diamond encrusted microphone and wearing something from the next season of the Ivy Park collection. Um, I'm going to have me a PR box. It's happening. I'm claiming it. It's going to happen. All jokes aside, though, thank y'all so much for listening and spending the season with me. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios in partnership with Netflix and Strong Black Lead. Executive producers are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Jasmine Lawson, and Agaranesh Ashagre. Our lead producer is Josh Gwynn. Production by Jess Jupiter and Janelle Anderson with additional support by Cindy Okereke and Alexis Moore. Our music has been by the incredibly talented Don Will. You can follow him on the socials at DJ Don Will. I have been your host, Tracy Clayton, and you can find me on the Instagrams at Broken McPoverty. Um, you can still come say hey, even though the podcast is taking a break. You know, come come hang out with me. I still exist. When I, get, when I leave the studio, y'all, I'm still here. You know, just come check up on me. Make sure to follow us on all the socials that you can find at Strong Black Lead. Make sure to keep sending us names of the folks that you want to hear on season three. We hear y'all. We do. If you enjoy what you heard, spread the joy and tell a friend. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Strong Black Legends on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever free podcasts are sold. Until next time, shine bright like Beyonce's custom five-inch Christian Louboutin boots at Beachella. That is mad bright, y'all. The brightest. I love y'all. Bye. Bye.